Okay, we're reading from 1 Peter 2.11, 2 verse 11 to 3 verse 12. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the King. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days, 
must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Can we bow our heads in prayer? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd engage our hearts and minds with your word and whatever we profitably learn from it this evening, we ask, Father, this indeed may be a milestone in our own development as Christian people. And therefore, Father, we pray the one who caused these words to be written, the Spirit indeed who dwells in our hearts and lives, we pray that we may have illumination and understanding as we read these words. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. I'm aware that uh, Saturday night we've uh, managed most of those of you who've got children to accomplish the miracle of getting them to bed. <coughs> it's been a long day. But I want us to go through this important passage because the issue is of the Christian developing this monocular vision. And where should the focus of our lives be? That's the important thing. We saw this morning it's on the hope that rests before us. And life looks different when we have that perspective in terms of the focus. We come now to this issue that there are two ways for Christians to live. One is foolish, the other indeed is productive. And this is why we, in the opening part we see in verse 11 <coughs> this statement that Christians are sojourners and exiles. In the letter to Diognetius in the second century, he said that every home is a foreign land, and every home, and sorry, every land a foreign, sorry, every home is a foreign land, and every land a foreign home. And what he's sort of saying there is, how do Christians see themselves? If this world is not our final destination, if not everything is here, then the call for the Christian person <coughs> is to see ourselves as sojourners. People who live alongside in this world, people who in many ways are resident aliens, and yet our final destination is heaven itself. And that makes a difference in the way the Christian looks at life. And it does so for this reason. There is a bad way for Christians to live. And Peter is well aware of this. And therefore this is what he says, that you must abstain from those passions that are at war within your own heart and life. Because there's a war going on. There's a war about me being pleased by what I want to do, being driven by different, as it were, motives and passions in life. And on the other hand, there's a different way to live. And we're reminded here that the Christian person has to make this choice. It's an ongoing choice as to whether or not we will live and we'll focus on ourselves and harm ourselves. And we see that in Christian pastoring and ministry, sometimes how people can do harm to themselves. But that's not God's way. God's way is different. He wants us to focus in a very different way. And this is what Peter will spell out for the, for the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 of where the focus of the Christian life is. And it's very significant <coughs> Because he says he wants their lifestyle amongst the, 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 the Gentiles to be that which is appropriate. 
even if they speak against Christians, which they did in the first century, and they still do today, that they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God in the day of visitation. It's interesting how often the word good works, one of the translations that says do what is right. No, it's what is the good deeds that Christians are meant to do, the good works. That is what is to commend the Christian faith. It's the fruit there of living a life in which we are doing good and we're seeking to be a blessing. That indeed is the signal and therefore on the day of visitation people will glorify God. The day of visitation is the day of visitation for the outsider. And Peter no doubt has the, word in, the words in mind of Jesus that they will that they to see your good works. And here it is the good works which they behold. You can't hide a light, it shines. And therefore the Christian person is to be someone who will, as a result of their lifestyle, will cause others to glorify God on the day of visitation. Now Peter goes from here and he looks at three spheres of life. He looks at what we call the public square in the first century. Then he looks at the place of business, because the household was that. <coughs> most of that household, most of the business in the first century was actually undertaken within the context of the household. And then the relationship of husbands and wives. And in each one of these, the theme rests in terms of the doing of good. In the first century, the responsibility of how you define government, and Peter does this exactly the same here, that governors are sent to carry out the judicial arm, to punish those who are lawbreakers. And the other role of government is to praise those who do good in the public domain. And that is why you will see sometimes inscriptions which says that so-and-so is indeed a good and, a good and, and, and civic-minded person and he is publicly acknowledged. And it was the role of governors and the role of cities to publicly acknowledge those who were civic benefactors. And what I find very interesting is that Peter starts in this civic square and like the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, that Christians individually are called upon to make a contribution to the welfare of the city. It was expected that in the first century that if you were very wealthy that you would make some contribution. And Christians are actually, Paul and Peter, both endorse this whole business. That if you have resources, and this is how the city works, it depended upon the good works, that the Christians in the civic square, they are to do this and they will be commended. It doesn't refer to moral good, however that the emperor could know what moral good was being carried on in Rome. It refers to the business of the doing of good. And this is a very interesting idea. It comes from the book of Jeremiah. We are to seek the welfare of the city. Now for many years I didn't believe that. I believed that simply that Christians were there to evangelize, to show the gospel, that the business of doing anything in terms of good works and contributing to the public, as it were, to the welfare of the city was not what Christians are meant to do. When I began sprawling in the end, it ended up as a book called Seek the Welfare of the City, Early Christians as Benefactors and Citizens. And I have a friend, uh, when we talked about this, a very wealthy friend in America, and this enormous piece of real estate right in the middle of Orlando, and we talked about this issue. So when they built their new building for their bank and other things, he gave a whole section of this to the city. 
because the city lacked this public square where people could come and could do things at lunchtime. So it's interesting also the city honoured him. This is a very ancient tradition, by the way, the way in which government worked. Now, government and the way we work today is different. There's still the judicial arm in terms of that. But Christians ought to think about what contribution they can make. Uh, Romans 13 is individually. It's not for the church corporately, individually. But there is a role for the Christian person in the context of the city in which we live. Because God cares for the welfare of the city. The book of Jonah tells us that. God does care. And therefore, the Christian person, as he's thinking about what good he can do, the question is, is there anything that he can do which will actually be a source of blessing and benefaction to the city? So it begins surprisingly with the civic square. And I find that sort of always been a challenge in my own thinking. But this is how the Christian person is to live. And if he does this, this indeed will silence allegations against him. Because in verse 16, we've been set free. But we mustn't use our freedom for the purpose of doing wrong. But we are to be those who live as servants, and we are to honour others, we are to love the brotherhood, we are to stand in, 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 in awe of God, and we indeed are to honour the ruling authorities. So it's very, I find this uh, always a, an interesting challenge in the way in which focus of doing good is first of all in the civic square and in the context of how Christians relate primarily uh, to others within the city in which they live. As you know, if, if something, if Christians do great wrong, then in the city it brings the church and it brings the Christian message into disrepute. But when the opposite happens, it is a great, indeed a light for many people to say that these Christians indeed are people who care and they reflect the character of the God and the character of the gospel in terms of the way that God cares for us. <clears throat> so this is the important thing, that it starts there in the welfare of the city. And if you go to the city of Corinth, the, the ruins there, it's interesting, there's a, an enormous uh, pavement laid by someone who's mentioned in Romans uh, chapter 16, verse 23 a man called Erastus. <clears throat> and he's the Christian man who laid this pavement outside the great theatre in Corinth. He did it at his own expense, and he did it as part of an election promise to become the, as it were, the administrator of the city. And so there is written in abbreviation in Latin that this pavement is laid by Erastus in very large letters. That is the largest one in the whole of all the inscriptions we have in the city of Corinth. So I don't know what he had in mind, but certainly he wanted people to see that, yes, he had laid this. And uh, Paul sees in, in uh, Romans 16.23 how it is that Erastus sends his greeting, Erastus, who is the city treasurer. And this opened up a very interesting, as it were, insight into the way in which Christians sought to contribute to the welfare and the blessing of the city. It was next to the McDonald's fast food uh, cafe that used to rush food inside <coughs> into the theatre. <coughs> but I don't think he was a stakeholder in McDonald's in those days at all. But simply he laid this as part of his contribution. And he himself was for a year an honorary official responsible for the running of the whole of the city of Corinth. 
The next thing is that we realise that in terms of the workplace or where there are servants. Now remember that servants in the first century were only uh, under contract for seven years and after that they were liberated. They were paid, given a wage, their children were educated free, they were given also lodgings in the home and therefore uh, if you were a servant you had this contractual arrangement. And how do people who have a contractual arrangement operate? in the context of their own work that they're called upon to do. And therefore we're told that those who are bonded servants, I think the word slave is not a good word, the word bonded servant is the better word to use in the New Testament, that bonded servants are to be subject to their own masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good, but also to those at times who are unreasonable. And this is a gracious thing, if mindful of God, one endures discrimination in the workplace, if you want to put it like that. That's what he's talking about. <clears throat> if you do wrong, he said, of course, then you deserve to uh, receive the, comp the, the compensation for having done wrong. But if when you do good in the workplace, and there's some discrimination for it, this is something that's pleasing in God's sight, in verse 21, why? Because Christ also suffered. And Christ has left us a paradigm as to how we are to react. And what is that? It's told that he committed no sin in verse 22. There was never anything he said that was out of place. When people spat at him, he didn't spit back. He didn't revile them. And when he suffered, he didn't say, my father's going to get you guys. He didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. And Peter can't help in his writing to go back to the centrality of the great moment in which what God has done. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin. In other words, sin would lose its grip on us and we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. You were a sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So for Peter, the gospel is always central. He comes back to that. And even as he mentions, well, Christ is our example. It's not what what would Jesus do, like what car would he drive in that silly nonsense we had back about ten years ago in some American television program. <clears throat> it's what did he do? How did he respond? And I can think of people who have been Christians in the workplace who have been discriminated against. I think in the ten years we were in Singapore, that there were Christians in that situation, who because they were Christians, they didn't get all the promotion, they didn't do all those sorts of things. But still, here was the paradigm how they were to operate. They were to continue to do good, to do their work, to do it well. And this indeed is something that is gracious and well-pleasing in God's sight. Because man or God ordained man in Genesis 2 that he should serve the soil. He's there to do things. Things are not there for him. And in the context of the workplace, that's very important for us to see. That is God's calling, whatever it is. And it's there that the Christian person is to be someone who contributes, who's a blessing, a help, and not a negative person in the context there. And this is sort of very important in terms of of what Peter's saying. 
Now we come to the question of wives and husbands, and I do lament that a good number of the translations don't have be subject to your own husband. In the first century, there was a very strong feminist movement. Prenuptial agreements. Sometimes wives didn't sleep at home, slept elsewhere, and it was in a situation of disarray. And here it is, how does a Christian wife operate? And we're told that uh, even if the other person, is it not at this stage as a Christian, the wife is to be a godly woman, and therefore her lifestyle is one that's to be appropriate. Now in the first century, <coughs> uh, that we discover interesting things because uh, women sometimes took hours to have their makeup little bits of powder, little bits of paint makes the girl's confession just what it ain't, as we used to say when I was a young guy. <clears throat> and that probably is still true in certain places. But there was an emphasis on the wearing of braided hair, the wearing of gold, or putting on expensive clothes. That was the, that was the dress of the high-class prostitute in the first century. You wear what you wore in Roman law. There were certain characteristics and here you have this move in which this uh, feminist movement that's risen up, that they are beginning to dress and to operate in, as it were, a promiscuous way. But that's what is said of the Christians. No, you don't do this. It's not the external things. You don't dress in this inappropriate way. But who you are is who you are inside, not exactly what you are on the outside. And that's where the emphasis is to be. Because as time goes on, it's lovely to see, in terms of one's own partner in marriage, to see that the business of my own wife, of who she is inside and how much I value that, for the person that she is. And uh, the outside, I know she does take some time to do those things and she's got nothing to wear and we have all the things. We have those sorts of problems in every home, I think, with husbands. <coughs> that I've got nothing to wear, so I said, well, darling, wear nothing, it'd be an absolute hit. <coughs> At this big Cambridge dinner, which was, I almost got hit, I can tell you, she was very cross with me for saying that. <coughs> but it's, it's, <laughs> I'm sorry, we better, we better get rid of this from the tape later, okay, unless <laughs> you might just, <coughs> here I've told the secret, okay, <coughs> of what's happened. But this is what it was like in Sarah's, that she respected her husband, and, uh, even if the man wasn't at this stage a Christian, she was a loving and kind person. And I think those of us who are husbands, we have real cause to thank God for our lovely wives and for who they are in terms of the inside. But the culture was so taken up with the business about the outside and this new movement, and therefore the Christian person here has to be reflective that we just don't go... The, uh, with the flow in terms of all the fashions and things. It's interesting, the characteristic in the first century in the inscriptions, funeral mother, is the question of modesty. The modest woman, that is the ideal person who is married, and not these people <coughs> who are dressing like this to make some impression on out the outside. So that's what a person is to be. This is the holy women of old, in verse 5, adorned themselves and they submitted to their own husbands. They were faithful to their husbands. What about husbands? Well, here's an absolute exocet missile across their bow. 
that we are to live with our wives and we are to be considerate. Nothing, I think, ruins marriages more than inconsiderate husbands who are selfish. Their mothers did it. They got married. Their wives got to do it. Pick up, do all these things for them. They're not very thoughtful for the needs of their wife. But we are told that we are to show honour to our wives because they are joint heirs with us. I always remember in my own marriage day how it was that I turned and faced the congregation. And we've been married. And my wife is on my arm. And now we were joint heirs as we walked through the journey of life. I remember when my son and my daughter were married. And uh, what a great thrill it was that here they now were joint heirs. This was a wonderful partnership. This was not a sense of inferiority, that one was more superior than the other. This lovely thought that we are joint heirs of the grace of life, and therefore we walk this, we walk together, and we're in partnership and not in domination. And therefore, to see this idea that wives must be submissive to their own husbands—that is, they are to be sexually faithful—that's what that means in the first century. And I think a good deal of the discussion about wives being submissive in more recent times has actually missed the mark of what is said. Because if you look at the prenuptial agreements, you will see how easy it was for easy come, easy go for a wife to walk in, to walk out. It's easy. They said, I'm leaving. The dowry's got to come back. This is it. Bye-bye. So it's a very different world from the one that I think we sometimes have in our own thoughts. And the Christian husband is to be thought for his wife. And the wife herself is not there to be sort of his lord and master, sort of issuing edicts and fatwas and various things in terms of the way the home is run. And therefore to be submissive to one's own has to do with professional sexual faithfulness and not doing everything every order that his lord and master marks things out. We're joint heirs of the grace of life. We do things together. We think about things as to how we can best do them. And we discuss them. And that's the view that there is of this concept of marriage in the first century. And here Peter is putting the Christians into this framework. That's how that important relationship is to be. In effect, that we are to do good in marriage and to think about the needs of others. And first of all, we wake in the morning to think about the needs of the other person. And, and that, I think, is very important <coughs> of how we may please our wives and what we may do to enhance their lives. Because elsewhere, as we know in Ephesians, Paul talks about the fact that, 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 that a woman looks beautiful on her wedding day, but ten years later should she be more beautiful because the husband has sought to adorn and to affirm her as a person. And this is absolutely critical in terms of what it means to love our wives as Christ has loved the church and given himself. So it's important that we understand these passages in their context, and not sometimes in terms of the way it's been read in the past. So here we are in this concept of the family. And then what we have, and this is just my last point, it's not going to be a long point, really from this next section on, the whole business about the Christian person from verse 8. In addition, that should read, not finally, and sometimes the preacher says, finally, you know, you've got another 20 minutes. <coughs> they don't believe it. <coughs> not, your, not your minister, but it happens. 
Well, next time he does it, we can just wait and say, in addition, okay. In addition, and this is the word to us all, we are to be people who have the same mind. Now, what that means is God's mind. It doesn't mean to say some consensus. That's the call for people to have the same mind. Paul talks about it, Peter talks about it. It's not where we arrive at some consensus, but the word of God is that which determines our framework. And more than that, we are to be people who are sympathetic. Because life is tough, isn't it? We can turn up on a Sunday and we put a face on. But life in the week and situations in life and families and in the workplace can be tough. And therefore, when we come to gather as God's people, we have to be sympathetic. And there's to be love of the family. I get a thrill on a Sunday when I'm thinking, this is my family. This is my family. And we're brothers and sisters. There's no hierarchy in any context. And for the first century world to use this is off the planet. You never referred to someone as a brother or sister unless they were a blood brother or blood sister or they were adopted. But the Christian life comes in a very different view. And it talks about us as being family together. And then it says that we are to be tender-hearted. And sometimes, you know, people can be very the opposite. But when we see something happening to someone, my heart goes out and I think, well, how can I help and how can we support you? We ought to know, even as it's tough out there when we gather as God's people on Sunday, that we are to be tender-hearted people and we're not just standing in judgment on others, as so can often happen and be seen to be the case. And what's more, to be humble-minded. I always remember this one day standing in front of the enormous library in Cambridge, a fantastically big library. <clears throat> and just realise that people come and go and they think they know everything. And realise how little I knew. I may have spent my 20 years in doing things in research and doing writing, etc. But one is just standing at the edge of a vast ocean of knowledge. And even when it comes to reading God's word, I realise how smart God is. Highly intelligent. And the things that I've read and I keep discovering, and I realise at times just some, how little I do know, and something I've read so often before pops out and suddenly I realise. So it's not as if we're in the business of being smart, we are simply recipients of information. And it's important for us to be humble minded in the way we approach things. And how do we handle issues? <coughs> <coughs> Because that point is the business of having the feeling with people. The reality is we are so greatly blessed by God, we are meant to bless. That's the Christian. We've been so, as it were, God has poured upon us such an abundance of his blessings that he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. Because this is what you are called to do, to be a blessing. And to be someone who feels such a sense of joy in their hearts that God has so richly blessed our lives. My wife and I, when we returned from England, we just said, how great God has blessed us. We just sort of began to reflect on that. And what we, we were not called to simply then we've got blessings so we just hang on to this. No. We're called to be a blessing to others. You were called. And what's the blessing that we have in verse 10? It says, citation from the psalm. 
Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, then watch your tongue. Shut your mouth, bite it. Okay. And your lips from speaking deceit. It's not true, then say it. Think before you open your mouth. Lots of people, Christians, who suffer from foot and mouth disease every time they open their mouth, they put their foot in. Okay. And do harm. And the Christian is to turn away from evil and to do good. He's to seek peace and not to be someone who's a person of dissension. And he's to pursue that because the eyes of the Lord are open on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But if a Christian person is someone who doesn't control their tongue and things like that, the Lord doesn't want to know you. He's not listening. He's turned the back off. He's put the, he's, he's put the mobile on, but he's not hearing. That's frightening, isn't it? That's what's being said here. It's very important. The husband's selfishness can hinder his prayers. Here it is that the person who does this. And so this is a great warning to us that Peter cites this psalm and is writing to Christian people. And therefore, how we live matters. Because if we are meant to be the people who do good, and we're meant to be people who bless others, of course God will continue to pour his blessings upon us. And he, his ears will be open to our cry. He will hear our prayers. So you can see how important the question of grace and the question of ethics are. You can see the importance of how we live and the business of God hearing us and his blessing resting upon us. And this is one of the startling things that actually come out, I think, from this letter of how it is that this is the true grace of God. And therefore Peter is saying, I'm exhorting you because you need to be exhorted. And I'm also wanting to declare what the reality is. So as it were, this I see is a, is a wake-up call, this great letter. A wake-up call for me as a Christian as to how I respond and the business of how I control my tongue and do things and whether or not I'm a peacemaker or a problem. Because Peter sees how easy this is both in, this, in the setting of the congregation of God's people and also in life itself. This is what I see, an interesting thing. We focus, as we saw this morning, on the grace that is coming to us. And we're told in the opening part that we are to fix our, our, as it were, our eyes or our thoughts fully on that. But at the same time, the Christian person is meant to have this other focus. And the focus is on being someone who is involved in the doing of good to others and living a life that's pleasing to God and not just simply shrugging and saying, well, God will be gracious, so it doesn't matter how I live. That's not the true grace of God. And as I see the way in which Peter is giving this emphasis, he wants a life that works. He wants a Christian's life there to be productive and to be a blessing wherever they go, in the family, the workplace, in the city square, wherever it is, that Christians are people who are contributing and they are not part of the negative, but they're part of the positive that adds salt, that adds flavour and gives it an extra dimension or that's light, indeed, that is a blessing to other people. So I want to encourage you this evening, before you hit the hay, <coughs> to... Just read through this section and to pray that God himself will help us 
to hear this call and to be people who are, have this focus not only on that, the future that's coming to us, which is a great blessing, but also the focus on how we can be a contributor in a positive way to all the spheres of life in which we live. Paul talks about the obedience of faith. Peter's talking in many ways about the same thing. This question, it's one thing to have faith and to know Christ and to be forgiven and to have the assurance of a future. That is an enormous blessing to us. It couldn't be better. But there's also another focus with the Christian person. And sometimes people want that, but they want to ignore that. And that's not the true grace of God in which we need to stay. Let's bow our heads in prayer. <coughs> Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you will forgive us when at times we have uh, strayed and we've been so consumed by ourselves in our own world and our own power base and our own needs. But Father, we pray that the words we've heard this day without outward ears might find a lodging place and might continue to arrest us as we see the plan and purpose you have of how we are to respond and how we are to be a blessing because we have been so richly blessed by you. Help us to feel that sense of overwhelming gratitude that that indeed may be something that shapes our attitude and the way we function in the context and relationships of life. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.